You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Morning and a very warm welcome to you, as, as Pete said. If, if, if you're not a student or, and you like feeding people who are not students, I'm always willing to be fed. That did sound great. Um, just, I just wanted to say, um, years ago, I was working in Melbourne in Australia and Steph and I decided on the way back to basically have a week's holiday in Sydney and so we flew from Melbourne to Sydney and um, I'm on the uh, like the aisle seat, I like a bit of leg room and uh, Steph was next to me and then on the other side of her on like the window seat is this dear old lady, I don't want to put an age on her, but she was definitely like a, a, a retired lady. And uh, anyway, I'm not great at flying. I have terrible ear pain, which happens to one in however many people. And uh, I can often just, on a normal flight, end up in tears. Uh, anyway, on the flight, the captain comes onto the tannoy and he says, we're about to go into an air pocket, which is common on this particular route. The plane is going to rapidly and significantly lose altitude. This is normal on this route. Don't panic, but please prepare yourselves by taking the emergency position. And I'm like... Okay, this is going to be fun. So it was like, tables away for the dear lady, teeth out, head between your knees, like lean forward, hands over your head. And I'm like, I've got to be honest, I was not ready for what was coming. And I kid you not, we just dropped, like significantly. I love drama, I love crisis, but I do not like flying. So I'm like looking for the emergency mask, the life jacket, I was like cropping myself and all sorts. Anyway, um, I, everyone else is like emergency position. I flew up like a meerkat, I have no idea why. I'm like, I'm like this. And so I'm bolt upright, and I've never done this before, and I hope to never do it again, and I don't think I could recreate it, but I screamed like a five-year-old girl for a prolonged period of time. And uh, Steph's still down in, the, in, the, in the, like, the embrace position, whatever they call it, and this more senior lady next to Steph, I don't know if it was because of her age or just she was panicking because of me, but she wasn't fully down and she wasn't fully up. She was like kind of like halfway in between. And um, I lent over towards her, over the top of Steph, and I grabbed her, both arms, and I've got hold of her elbows like this, and I'm embracing her, honestly, the things I do. And because I've got blocked ears, uh, I don't know if you've had that on a flight, but it just causes you to kind of speak quite a lot louder than you might normally. So having just screamed, I'm now shouting at this dear lady. And I said, it's okay. I know Jesus. You could know Jesus too. We can go there together. And um, I, anyway, I then let go of her one elbow and I put my hand out like this. And I'm like, Lord, receive my spirit. And uh, as I looked up, and there's a few lessons in this. Firstly, please do not fly with me. I'm literally, I'm a liability. Um, the, but the second one is, these things happen so quickly. Like, it feels like in the moment, time stands still, but actually it happened really quickly. And uh, the plane stabilizes, of course it did, because we're still here. We started to climb again, and uh, uh-oh. I just need to add something. So, um, I'm obviously, like, super chill, just in the brace position. Paul has created mass hysteria on the plane because of the shouting and the panicking and the screaming. Even though this is like a commonplace thing, every time they do this domestic flight from Melbourne to Sydney, yeah. they always go through, go through this air pocket. 
and the pilot could not have been more clear that this is normal, this always happens, you just have to assume the brace position. Mass hysteria for the whole of the duration of the flight. Yeah, it actually was, it lasted. But the awkward thing was, as the plane kind of like stabilised, everybody in front of me, and I actually became aware of everybody behind me, was like looking at me quite significantly. And they're like... And anyway, Steph's just stayed down. She's like, just totally disowned me. And I was like, well, you know, like, I don't know. It could have been slightly different. But I got, honestly, like the flight was awkward, but luggage reclaim was like a... It was, an, it was another level of pain. Uh, and like, Steph disowned me slightly rightly. But anyway, I guess I, I want to kind of hopefully try and say this. Um, in, in moments of crisis and in moments of turbulence, what is going around us is tested and what is in us comes out. And I honestly would not choose that moment again. I wouldn't choose to do it quite how I did, particularly the screen bit. Um, but I, I feel like we've constantly been in moments like that since the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, maybe even slightly before. But there's been these moments of endless instability in, in our society, Brexit, American presidents, UK prime ministers, social and racial tensions, wars, pandemics, the, like, the toilet rolls, like what was that all about? Um, the fuel crisis, the lack of lorry drivers, then the food shortages, the cost of living, the energy crisis, it surely can't get any worse. And then the last couple of weeks, let's not even talk about what's just happened with the mini budget. But I, I will forever resist political statements. I don't think it helps anybody. In fact, I think it just divides us. But I couldn't not say something because I think this constant state of living in crisis leads us to increased levels of anxiety and emotional depletion that we are constantly, currently, going from the frying pan straight into the fire. We go from a bad situation to one that seems to be potentially even worse. It can't get any worse, surely. Oh, it just has and it just did. And everyone everywhere currently seems to be having the conversation about do you turn the heating on? You know, like about mortgage rates and about disposable income and yet the poorest and the poorest and the poorest in our society who were in unbelievable pain and had lack of food prior to some of the more recent events, lack of heating, lack of, lack of, lack of, lack of, lack of, are forced to make even more heartbreaking choices. And I'm in no way asking us to turn a blind eye to what is happening around us in society. But if anything, rather than run away from it, I think we need to remind ourselves that we have a foundation on which we stand that so often in a moment of crisis we can overlook. Hebrews 6 verse 19 says, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. We need to be a people that are anchored and our souls need to be anchored in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Matthew 7, 24, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock, the rain comes in the torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house. It will not collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is a foolish person like a person who builds a house on sand when the rain and the floods come and the winds beat against that house it will collapse with a mighty crash let's in this time let's always build on rock psalm 18 verse 2 
The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my saviour. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He's my shield, the power that saves me in the place of safety. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. Can I just remind us, not only of the moment we're in, but the mission we're on. Crisis has and will always provide us with opportunity. When the foundations on which we build life, the relationships, the houses, the economies, the jobs, the pensions, the health securities, you could go on and on and on and on and list many, many things. When they crumble, it gives people a jolt. But that jolt doesn't last very long because we find the next thing to build our security on. The first few weeks of the pandemic saw a mass of people search for church, a mass of people exploring faith. A couple of weeks later, they formed a new pattern of living that allows them to cope. The parallels to the Israelites is so, so telling. So often their fear led them into places of disobedience and our interests, our goals and our ambitions must be centred on focused on Jesus Christ and the all-embracing task that the gospel has set before us. Romans 15 verse 20, Paul said this, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Jesus Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. We are going to keep planting small groups we are going to keep raising and releasing leaders and ultimately seek to to plant churches we're going to keep loving each other we're going to keep serving the poorest and the broken and the marginalized in our society we're going to go left foot right foot and we're going to keep going we read acts and we reread acts too devote yourselves to the word to the fellowship to the sharing of meals including the lord's supper and to prayer we're going to keep seeing as we are seeing miraculous signs among us we're not going to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing so we're going to keep sharing with those in need with remarkable generosity and we will keep seeing people come to seek out and find jesus that's what we read and that's what we're going to keep doing because we do what he tells us to do and we need to remind ourselves that we carry hope we have the thing that the world currently needs. We know the answer. We stand on the rock. I'm not trying to sweep under the carpet some of the things that you guys are walking through and some of the things that you are carrying, the concerns, the pains, the struggles that you personally have in this moment. But for all of us, the thing we need and the solution to all of it is Jesus. And there are a lot of people out there who need to know him, who don't know him. And so we can so easily get caught up in the, in the talk of the day and the thing of the day, because there's always the next thing. But it also always presents us with an opportunity to show and to reveal what we found and what we know, because the hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And that hope has a name and his name is Jesus. You know, in the first week of the pandemic, we created the Acts 2 Fund. And since then, we've been able to give thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds to meet needs, not just among us, but also further afield. And that part still exists as a result of your generosity. Some of you are still pouring into it so that we can pour out of it. We're not going to do another specific offering to bolster it. I know right now at the minute we're delicately placed as a, as a people group. But amongst us, let's keep meeting together. 
let's keep meeting the needs of the needs that we find and we see. And let's do it with great generosity, as it tells us in Acts 2. I pray in these times that the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven, because we've got the Holy Spirit inside of us, empowering us and enabling us to live on a mission. In a world where at times it seems to be living at its worst, we get to live out our best because of what is embedded within us. We know the truth, and we now have to live that out as proof to the world around us. In every conversation, in every circumstance, in every life choice, we have the opportunity to prepare the way for Jesus to be more known and more visible. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now the day of his return is drawing near. I just want to encourage you this morning, hold tightly without wavering to the hope because it is strong and it is trustworthy and it is an anchor for your souls. You know, a fearful world needs a fearless church. Honestly, this is our time. This is our moment again. We're so, we're just that song we sang it this morning, we sang it the, the last few weeks. We're blessed when we have nothing left. But to hunger for the righteousness of God, let the church arise. We want the real thing. I want to see the kingdom come. And let it be a, a place and a heart of repenting until all we have is a cry simply for Jesus. And every idol of this season of our time needs to fall. You know, we often get disillusioned because we have an illusion. Honestly, we don't want to get disillusioned because we don't have an illusion. Let's focus on Jesus and we've got to rewrite the story. We've got to rewrite the narrative of our culture. If we were, honestly, if we were in a different stream or a different denomination now, I'd be like, can I get an amen? Honestly, we want to be people that live alone for Jesus. Let me, let me just jump on a bit. A few weeks ago, I started um, this, this series called Empowered Church. We need to live out exactly that right now. We need to be empowered. We need the Spirit of God to strengthen us, embolden us, fill us, and send us out. And a local church in the context and the value base of, of, of the Vineyard Movement, we're committed to the centrality and the functional authority of the Bible to be effective, to, to, to have Jesus' exalting operation of spiritual gifts among us. I'm so aware of some of the manip manipulative excesses and the self-serving um, fanaticism that surrounds all that. And yet, honestly, we need to be people that delight in the speaking of tongues, that are praying for the sick, that are prophesying for the edification of others and the encouragement and the comfort of others. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but it's the same spirit that is the source of them all. We want to be people that acknowledge the source is the Holy Spirit, and we want to make space and give freedom for him to move among us. Verse 7 of that same chapter says a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. We all get to be part of this thing. 
There isn't like a special selected few. The gifts are God himself working in us and through us, and they're concrete. They're often tangible. Sometimes they're, they're visible. They're like a vocal disclosure of divine power that is showcased through human activity as we trust him and we step out and take risks. The Holy Spirit himself comes to, to be very clear and sometimes actually quite dramatic expressions in the lives of people as they minister to one another. It's a regular part of who we are. We can't shy away from that. If anything, we go on to go for it more. Even this last week, I just heard some stories of some of you physically healed, emotionally freed, and changed. And every time I'm like, wow, that's, that's it. That's the thing that we long for is the manifest presence of God among us. I heard it said that the gifts of God go in public among his people. And surely with all I shared at the start just a minute ago in this world right now, surely there's an urgent need for a greater infusion of God's omnipotent, limitless power among us in our lives individually, but in the church collectively, that it would spill out into surrounding society. Spiritual gifts are the concrete, tangible manifestations of divine energy in and through followers of Jesus. And Paul writes that this energy, energizing power from the spirit is essential to the church as a whole. That's the people that we want to be. And in the lives of individuals within that church, and we want to reach the full maturity that we can attain to in them. God's power comes in a variety of forms, but spiritual gifts are often the primary expression of God's work in our midst and amongst us. 1 Corinthians 12.4. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. I've shared in um, recent weeks that each of us should be seeking to equip the church. Part of our role as individuals as we come into maturity is then to equip others, to equip the church. That's our responsibility. We're given roles and we're given gifts to help us equip, not to hold on to something tightly for ourselves, but to release something and to, to, to almost pour it out onto others. And this stuff can often, I think, go a bit wonky because we kind of make it about us. Somehow the focus becomes about us and we hold on to it, but that was never the point and it was never the purpose, which is why sometimes we'd use the language of like, we've got to share the toys and we've got to play nicely because it's really, it's not about us. We've got to allow the Lord to, to cause the overflow to be in the church. And so a question I want to ask you and stir among you this morning is this, how important is it to you that the spiritual gifts operate fully? Because if, if we're t people who regard this as something as optional or not worth the effort or not worth the sacrifice that needs to be made, we're not going to be willing to endure mistakes and we're not going to be willing to press through where we see people do this in a flaky way and we're not going to push through the times of slight discomfort and we're not going to be willing to step out and take risks and at times maybe potentially look a bit stupid. I'd say that rarely is anything done in the life of the local church but especially 
when it's something new or it's something different that is devoid of any kind of error because mistakes honestly should be expected. We, we, we can act out of fear or we can, we can have a selfishness or a self-protection or a pride or an ambition. Of course, we're not, we're not aiming for any of that. I'm just saying that we need to keep learning and we need to keep being soft and keep being willing and learn to share the toys and play nicely. But we've got to remember that obedience must be more to us than any kind of success or image. Now, that's, that's quite an easy thing to say. kind of rolls off the tongue, but the reality is nobody openly declares that they're obsessed with what other people think of them or that they're reluctant to step out and try and do the thing that we find in Scripture. But we can't just dismiss things because of uh, ways that we've seen others live them out and some of the excesses that maybe we've previously found uncomfortable. I've often heard it referred to as the 11th commandment, and I'm not trying to write something into scripture that isn't there, but it's often said like this, thou shalt not do what I've seen others do badly. Now, I get it, because I've often fallen into that myself. Something in us wants to completely reject what we've seen others do with hype or manipulation. And we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't actually like that phrase, but I can't think of another way of saying it. But when, when I've, well, you know, I've seen in restaurants, followers of Jesus hound the waiter with the gospel and force themselves onto people and, and leave a little gospel explanation booklet under every single plate as they're about to leave. And then, then leave no tip and have no generosity in their heart. Something in me dies. And something in me almost vows like I'm never going to share my faith again. And I'm intentionally been slightly provocative in saying that because I think we have to call something out in ourselves. I have to resolve in my heart that I will never justify my disobedience to God's word because of my perception of maybe what to me has felt abusive or embarrassing in a practice of another. Another reason I think why many choose not to press forward in practicing and stepping out in power is because the effort sometimes is just too time intensive. You know, it's going to mean a significant shift in your focus and your priorities and will begin actually to shift the spiritual climate and temperature among us. It means that we have to start to have this increased willingness and longing to risk. I'm just going to very briefly mention three things to you this morning. I want to talk about risk, I want to talk about prayer, and I want to talk about faith. You know, with, with risk, you can study sailing. You might even be able to build a sailboat you could seek counsel from the wisest and most veteran of sailors. You can put your boat under the most beautiful skies and the, 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 the most inviting sun, and you can successfully potentially hoil the, sa the sail, but, and it is only a very, very big but, only God can make the wind blow. And see, some of you will have been in a season where you'll have been rowing, and we need to start to learn to sail because rowing depends on us but sailing is about him there is a significant risk we do all we can but then it is always over to him we've got to remember that the holy spirit is a person who has a will and has preferences and he wants to be pursued i think he refuses to be pushed 
but he longs to be pursued. And we've got to never lose sight of the fact that whether or not a particular spiritual gift is manifest or to whom it may or may not be given is completely up to him. Gifts are bestowed and gifts operate at his discretion, not ours. And as Paul said, he said it like this in 1 Corinthians 12, he said it is the one and only spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. See, that kind of breaks it down from, oh, I'm really good at, it's not about me. It's not because I can do something or I can conjure something up. We can so easily um, fluff ourselves up and come to rely on the thing that we can bring, but it really isn't us. And as we step back from that and realize I'm not, I'm just the cracked, broken jar of clay through which the all-surpassing glory of God can be on display. It's his, it's not mine. And we need to be equipped and we need to have some tools in our toolbox to live out all that God has called us to do. Now, some of those tools are the gifts that he gives us. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, let love be your highest goal. You should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. These verses tell us that not only is it not acceptable to, 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 to not seek the spiritual gifts, actually it's almost mandatory that we do. We've got to be people who, who seek after it. This is kind of just another way of saying that if we want to see and experience the full range of spiritual gifts, we've got to seek after them. We've got to pursue them relentlessly. And before we, we tumble over each other and we get wrapped up in comparison or feel disempowered because we don't have what somebody else has or we think they maybe do have something that we don't have, Paul says this, he says, I love it, he says, let love be your highest goal. We never exchange the gifts for love. The Holy Spirit is the one who decides who gets what. We don't, but we're told to earnestly desire the gifts and let love be the highest goal we've got a responsibility to pursue their presence in our lives so how do we go about that how do we do that well we we ask god i find it really helpful to look at the history of spiritual gifts and how they've operated in the church over the last 2000 years and i believe one of the reasons why spiritual gifts are often less frequent in certain seasons of church history than they are in others is often due to the fact that people didn't seek them out. They didn't pursue them. They almost became quite lazy in their understanding of it. It wasn't a passionate thing. It wasn't like an intercessory prayer and longing and yearning for them. Often the, the, the reason they didn't pray for them or ask for them is potentially because they had a prior conviction or belief that for some of them that they didn't even exist or that they weren't available to them or they were only for certain people. In other words, they had not because they asked not and they asked not because they believe not. Honestly, I think it's important sometimes we just grab hold of that. Why have we started seeing quite a sudden increase in physical healing and clear and a discernible link in many to an emotional healing partly because we've started and we've increased our asking and believing and seeking of it. And the more we've seen it, the more we've had faith to go after it. It's the hungry that are filled. It's the thirsty who are given a drink. And those who ask and knock and seek 
are those to whom the door is opened. And so many times we can get knocked back and our knocked back causes us to retreat. But I just want to say this really this morning is go again. Go again, go again, go again. James 4 verse 2. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. James mentions the most common problems in prayer is actually not asking or asking for the wrong things or asking with the wrong reasons. And we have to learn to desperately seek after God in prayer. Prayer and faith, prayer and faith, and the two go hand in hand. And as we have a broader picture, as we start to gather one of what it is to be empowered, our prayers become powerful when we allow God to change our desires so that they start to correspond with his will. And I take that passage in James that I just read to mean that actually God loves to be pursued. God loves to be asked repeatedly over and over again. Sometimes for us, we can have a fear that we're nagging or that we're laboring in unbelief, but God is pleased to draw near and God is pleased to pour out power and to do wonderful often miraculous things when his people persevere and persevere in prayer, asking again and again and again that the Spirit works in people's lives, that he works in their hearts, their bodies, their souls and minds. And I believe, I've I've seen, I would say, the outworking of that when people pursue him, when they pause and they pray and when they linger over one another with these intercessory cries that the spirit is more inclined to speak to them than if they simply just pat somebody on the back with the cliche, I'll be praying for you. We've got to be people that practice prayer. We can fall into the presumption of thinking that God will bestow all blessings on us, irrespective of our asking for them. And we assume sometimes falsely that God will give us, apart from prayer, what he has promised to give us only in response to prayer. And we say to ourselves, God is good, God is generous and he's kind and he's unrestrained in his blessings and he, and he loves his children and I'm one of them. And all of that in many ways is so true. But so although I know that I should pray, I continually seek his face. And if I, if I don't, I can count that God's going to come through for me anyway. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like this. That kind of thinking, I think, is like this. It's like you, you've, you've got exams and I don't need to revise for them because God is going to bless me. And in that moment, he's going to give me a quickened spirit. After all, that's what God is about, isn't it? He's a God of blessing. Well, he is, but it doesn't work like that because we have to put the graft in. And I, I, I see it like this. Although Isaiah here is speaking about God's relationship to Israel, I believe it's almost something like as a, as a principle that he articulates that is true of God in all time. It says Isaiah 30, verse 18. So the Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. He will be gracious if you ask for help. He will surely respond to the sound of your cries. I think that's, that is a stunning passage, to say the least. But if God is gracious and loves to show his mercy to people, then why doesn't he just do it? Why does he wait 
to be gracious? Why does he first require to, as the passage says, to hear the sound of your cry? Why does he insist that we first wait on him in prayer? I think it's important to know that, that it is for God. He loves it when we ask him for things that he knows we need. You know, from a human perspective, it might seem quicker. It might seem more efficient if we were simply to bypass prayer and he would just get on with the giving. But that's never been his way. And I think he makes that so clear to us that he finds particular honour and particular glory in, in, in being the one to whom we must humble ourselves and receive that which we need. But that doesn't mean we just like randomly and repeatedly, mindlessly babble before God. Just before Jesus uh, gave us what became known as the Lord's Prayer, that he said this to the disciples. He said, when you pray, don't heap up uh, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We find that in Matthew 6. We never want to fall into the trap of thinking that God is impressed by the same things that impress us. You, were, you and I may be overwhelmed and tricked by the, the, the wordy people, you know, and the verbal skills that would far exceed our own. But God isn't. He's not impressed by our words. It's frankly not about us. It's about him. I, I love Augustine said this. I think it was him who said this. He said, God does not ask us to tell him our needs that he may learn about them, but in order that we may be capable of receiving what he is preparing to give. You know, we should never assume that God will give us, apart from prayer, what he's promised in Scripture to give only in response to prayer. God has already given us prayer as a means through which we can earnestly seek him and earnestly seek his gifts. And prayer really is, is a skill because it's something that takes time and we have to train ourselves to learn. It's just like getting to know another person through conversation getting to know God through prayer takes time and it takes learning Jesus says this John six forty five, as it is written in the scriptures they will all be taught by God everyone who listens to the father and learns from him comes to me you see the spirit is a he's a solid teacher he's not just a spontaneous voice in the wind I I honestly want absolutely nothing to do with the name it and claim it approach, which kind of insists that you've got to believe in advance that what you ask for will be yours. Now, having said that, there is a place for believing that God will move powerfully and having hope that what we are asking is in accordance with his will and is something that he is pleased to give. And, and part of that and the understanding of that, we've got to demystify healing prayer because often people elevate it to a, to a level which is beyond the average person. People almost mistakenly think that it's down to only special people, only church leaders, only those with some kind of theological training can go and pray with power. Or you must speak some special kind of lingo, or you've got to somehow come up with words and language that is going to sway God's heart to say yes to your commands or your prayers. Prayer is sometimes seen as like this superstar or this 
professional thing. I just kind of want to quash all of that. I've never healed anybody, but I've seen Jesus heal many people in my weakness and my humanness, just simply asking and seeking him to move. And it's for all of us. All of us should play our part in that. Somehow people believe that somehow we've got to coerce God to respond if we just speak the right words or we use like the right tone of voice or we get the right look or the right stare. You know, in, in, in that view, God is just reduced to being some kind of genie in a lamp that pops out to perform this magical trick as we utter the right words to get him out at the right time we kind of got to hold to two biblical truths and really hold them in tension god's goodness and god's sovereignty god is good and he loves to give good gifts to his children we see that luke 11 but he's also sovereign and he can't be bullied to act in a way that is inconsistent with his internal purposes. Again, we see that in Matthew 5. And we've got to allow room in our theological framework for the redemptive purpose of suffering as well. We certainly hold a framework of understanding for holding attention and living in and through pain. But that cannot stop us from longing and persisting for healing and breakthrough. And it is attention. Sometimes we can throw one out because of our experience of the other. And there are also these misconceptions about the role of faith and how it relates to prayer. Some people believe that they, if they don't pray with absolute unyielding confidence that God will respond right then and right there, they may as well not pray or that somehow they failed in their prayer. And they want to avoid the feelings of guilt and the inadequacy that they can experience when they attempt to pray and discover that in that moment, nothing's happened in the way they asked. Honestly, faith is a lightning conductor. No two ways about it, but it doesn't depend on us. It's not an us thing, it's a him thing. And there is, there is a faith, and there is faith, and it's important to have faith, but there's also the gift of faith. And I just want to briefly stir that among some of you this morning. Because a number of you carry the gift of faith. And I want to fan that flame. I want to say, come on. This is the time to arise with that. I believe that's what Paul had in mind when he spoke of the spiritual gift of faith in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. Well, well how's it different? All of us have this expression of faith and trust and humble dependence upon a person or a promise. This is the experience of faith that somehow arises somewhat almost spontaneously and unexpectedly in our hearts. It's this sudden urge, this sudden supernatural surge of confidence and assurance that God is going to do something right here, right now. And if you look closely, I'm not going to read them, we haven't got time, but you can see in Mark 11, Matthew 17, 1 Corinthians 13, and James 5, some of the, the biblical examples of that. But this expression of faith is often quite a unique gift that is not universal to all of us, but it's given sovereignly by the Lord to specific individuals on specific occasions. Mark 11 says it like this, Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and it will happen, but you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. 
We've got to recognize that belief and faith here is not a case of us forcing ourselves to believe what we don't really believe. It's not like this inner wrestle with your brain or coercing your will or embracing something as real and true, something that in your heart and your conviction you don't actually believe. Jesus isn't telling you just, you know, when, you, when your doubts creep in, stick your hands over your ears and just go la, 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 la. That's, that's not faith. That's make-belief. And that's spiritual pretending but on the other hand we have a responsibility to take steps of faith that will facilitate the deepening of faith in our hearts and when we do things by God's grace which will expand our confidence in God's goodness and greatness we help to diminish if not actually drive out some of those doubts so I'd say when I when I read and I study and I meditate on the comfort on the on the character of God my confidence in God increases when I reflect and ponder the goodness and the kindness of God my confidence in his goodness grows and it intensifies now, there's clearly loads of factors that need to be taken into consideration when we ask God for things in prayer. Faith alone is not the sole condition of answered prayer. But we have to ask him with the right motives and things like that. We see it in James 4. But we have to also clean the slate, so to speak, in our relationship with others. There's a number of things that relate to that. That's why Jesus continued in the explanation of faith and prayer. He said in Mark 11, but when you're praying... First, forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your sins too. He points that if you harbour unforgiveness in your heart towards others, it isn't likely God is going to answer prayer, no matter how much alleged faith you have or think you have. Again, Matthew 6 picks up on it. But forgiveness has this huge part to play in prayer Therefore, this huge part to play in healing. And that's, that's totally another discussion for another day. But let me, let me just land <clears throat> with this. My point, though, is really to highlight the fact that otherwise humanly impossible feats and events that require supernatural and miraculous power can occur when prayer is filled with faith. And as we seek the Father more and more among us, we have the opportunity to increase our prayer and to increase our faith levels. And as we go on this journey together of being an empowered church and equipping ourselves with some of the gifts, some of that actually and the foundations of that are risk and prayer. And faith is a huge foundational building block in that. Why don't, why don't we stand? And I think we'll do exactly that. Let's just, let's just um, rest in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you. There's a whole um, team of people praying for you before you arrived this morning. They had no idea what I was talking on, but they, some of the words they had and senses they had was about taking risks and taking risks for healing.
there was another specific word about somebody just having uh, the needing to know that they can step into the grace and the mercy of God. I, I had a very strong sense this morning during worship that we should posture ourselves in desperation and humble ourselves afresh before him. Some of you this morning, almost the, the, the yearning in your heart is come and humble yourself again before God in a posture of desperation. We love to make space for the Holy Spirit. And like Paul said, he's a person and he has ideas and he has purposes and plans. And we want to participate in, in what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. So we just have to get comfortable with waiting, waiting to see what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. I just really encourage you not to, not to disengage, stay Stay in a, in a place where your heart is um, just postured towards him, where your ears are open, your hearts are open to him. Sometimes we come with a sense of what we feel we need from the Lord or, um, yeah, I kind of a heart's cry and we can come away and realise that God had a very different plan wants to do something altogether different in our lives in a particular moment. So, yeah, Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. We love yeah. you. Yes, we love your presence. Yes, As Paul was talking, I had a, um, a real sense that there may be a number of people in the room who just, um, you just feel really fearful. And I didn't have a specific sense about what, what that was, but you know there is fear in you. And you know it's debilitating and it, and it holds you back. And we'd love to come alongside you and pray for, for freedom in that, whatever that fear may be. Yeah, I, I just felt as some of you are um, particularly consumed by this season. I also um, believe this morning something specific the Lord is going to do is raise up some risk takers and uh, pour out the gift of faith in new measure. 
I saw, uh, I, I don't know whether it's obviously not here, but I almost physically saw a treasure chest this morning that was open and there was silver was poured out on the floor. And I think some of you need to just come and be almost adorned with, with jewels. There's some treasure that he wants to, um, to embed upon you. I think as well, I, I believe um, there's like a stirring for um, a, a, a fresh wind upon um, some intercessors. I think some of you know you have an increasing yearning to be intercessors, to carry that. There, there always is. Um, a, a, a longing and desire to have space for ministry, specifically also for, for physical healing. I know some of the things we've seen even in the last few weeks, I, if, if you don't have faith for that, I want to say, I do. I want to, I want to carry you on a mat and place you at the feet of Jesus. Go again. Why don't you respond? If you'd like to receive prayer, then just come to the front, come to the sides, and we'll make sure that, that people who are in small groups in the life of the church will come and pray with you. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.